It's our pleasure today to welcome back um, a, a friend of the Advent, the Reverend Stuart Latimer, um, Senior Pastor of Grace Presbyterian, uh, the North Shore um, in Chicago. Uh, a, a wonderful preacher and someone that we're delighted to be able to welcome again today. He will preach um, today and also preach again tomorrow. Uh, he will preach after we sang hymn 685. It's a great privilege to be with you uh, today. I had the privilege of being here uh, a couple of years in a row and then missed last year and I, I really miss being here. I always have a wonderful time. This church knows uh, hospitality very well and uh, it's, it's wonderful to be back with you. And so uh, thank you, uh, Dean Limehouse, for inviting me again and for the whole church for having me. And um, I want us to look at a passage from Mark today, Mark chapter 9, and this is actually a passage that if you attend the Advent that uh, you heard, I think Canon Gibbs give a wonderful sermon on this a few weeks ago, but it's a very rich passage and I'd like us to consider it again and I know many of you don't attend here and, and so I want us to read this, Mark 9 beginning in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you are thinking, I, I don't know how many of you uh, attend church regularly, come to church regularly, but uh, there are two common uh, reactions to the passage we just read. One is, well, something like that could not happen. And one is, even if it happened, it really wouldn't matter. And I think this is important for us to consider because uh, some of you are thinking, you know, alright, I, I decided to come to lunch, this Lenten luncheon, my friend's been asking me to come, and I finally came, and great. This is what I don't like about Christianity, right? Dead people appearing, bright lights, voices from heaven. You know, I need something practical. I need something, you know, I want to know how my career can get on the right track again. I need to know how my marriage will work. I need to know something that will really matter in my life. And so we, we tend to think that this is, really doesn't affect us in any way. 
And, and sometimes even people within the church begin to think this way. There's a New Testament scholar from Germany, Rudolf Boltmann, from the last century. He was actually writing during the time of World War II. And he said, it's impossible to use the electric light and listen to the wireless. That's the radio. <laughs> Who knows what he would say if he saw a high-def screen, right? <laughs> he says it's impossible to, to do these things and to believe what the scriptures say about miracles and about supernatural things. And, and you know, this is somebody who made his life's work out of studying the New Testament. And, and really what he was doing there is he was buying into the idea that science is God. And that science tells us everything we need to know. And I'm not going to try to argue that whole point this morning, but I, I just want to say this. First of all, we're, we're moving out of that stage of understanding of science these days because people recognize there's so many questions science can't answer. Who are you? Why are you here? What is good and what is evil? What is beautiful? None of those things can be determined by any scientific method. And, and so people... Realize that there's bankruptcy in just trying to live according to science. And yet, sometimes even within the church, people say, okay, well that, you know, that could have happened. Well, there's a reason why this is here. And part of what we're going to see is that these supernatural things are significant because we need a supernatural Jesus. We need a Jesus who is both God and man. You see, the, the acceptable Jesus is the Jesus who just walks around very calmly and just says, be nice to other people, you know, don't get in a huff, don't yell at people when you're driving down the road, love your neighbor. This is the acceptable Jesus. As, as I like to say, it's the, it's the Mr. Rogers Jesus, right? Put him in a cardigan, have a little toy train, and let's go see our neighbor. And that's the Jesus everybody wants, right? Not, not making any kind of demand, just kind of the nice guy that you see. Well, the, the problem with that, of course, is that Mr. Rogers would never have been crucified. The other problem with that is that you need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Or you're without hope. You see, did you ever have an older brother who, or an older sister who did everything right? Did you ever try to keep up with them? And do everything right. You know, talk to a psychologist. There are all kinds of people that go to therapy about this. You try and you try. And finally one day you just give up. Because you can't do it. You can't keep up. And, and the, the idea that what would Jesus do kind of craze that when it came around a number of years back. There were good aspects to that. Because it's helpful to think what would it mean to love somebody else the way Jesus would love. But the problem is that there are a whole lot of things Jesus did you can't do. Like here, shine with the light of glory, <laughs> you strike one. Uh, raise somebody from the dead, strike two. Uh, you know, uh, go up to a bunch of religious leaders and call them all whitewashed tombs and, you know, dead snakes and the Satan's their dad, you know, hopefully strike three. <laughs> Those aren't the ways you're supposed to be like Jesus, right? You, we need the Jesus who is both God and man. And, and we're going to see that this passage actually has everything to do with you as we go through it. So I want us to look very briefly at, at what actually happened here. Jesus has just asked Peter earlier, I think y'all looked at this passage yesterday, 
who he was. He asked the disciples. They say, other people think you're a prophet. We think you're the Messiah. He says, that's good. He says, but I'm here to tell you the Son of Man, the victorious Messiah that we see in Daniel 7, is also the suffering servant we see in Isaiah 53. He's going to suffer. And he's going to be rejected. And he's going to die. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. And uh, Jesus calls Peter Satan and says, get behind me. Uh, Listen to what I'm telling you. And then he says, if you actually want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. So it's six days after that event that Jesus takes three of his disciples and they walk up to the top of the mountain. And as they get to the top, Jesus begins to show forth glory. And he shines. It says in Mark that it's like his clothes have been bleached brighter than any bleach known to man. Luke actually says that it was like lightning. And and understand, this isn't at night. This is during the daytime. He's so bright, it's brighter than the sun. And there beside him are Moses and Elijah. Now, if if you don't know Old Testament history, let's just say this is the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament. Or at least the beginnings of it. This is Moses, the one who founded Israel. Who God revealed himself to on a mountain and spoke to on a mountain and gave the law to on a mountain. And and then Elijah, the one who restored Israel, who called people back to the law and back to Moses. And and these two great leaders of Israel are talked about in Malachi 4 and and they're told that this is part of what's going to happen as the kingdom comes. As, As God brings his kingdom into being, these two are going to be there. They're going to be present. And God's going to do things. And, and here they are. And Peter, you know, there, there are people who have a lot to say. And there are people who have to say a lot. And, and at this point in his life, Peter is one who has to say a lot. He's always talking and he's always saying the wrong thing. Now eventually he gets it, right? <laughs> and so all of that, you know, and, and Peter's in there just so you know, so that you and I can uh, relate to him. Because we are more like Peter than we like to admit. But Peter says, hey, let's set up, this is great, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, like three greatest people I can even think of. Let's set up booths, let's set up tabernacles, let's stay here. and, And he's really saying the same thing, let's have glory now, this is glory. Let's stay here and skip that suffering you've been talking about, Jesus. And in response to that... The glory cloud of God himself moves in. In the Old Testament, God would manifest his presence with what is known as the glory cloud. or It's the presence of the Spirit himself. The, the the, The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that would lead the children of Israel. This is that cloud. And it moves in. And out of the cloud, God the Father himself speaks and says, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. And he's saying, this is my son. He's, he's, he's recalling Abraham being called to sacrifice his own son Isaac, the son that he loves. He, he's quoting Isaiah 42. The prophecy of the suffering servant that would come. The son who he loves. And, and, and he's saying, listen to him. This is the greater prophet that Moses prophesied. Then all of a sudden they looked and everyone was gone. And as they're walking back down the hill, Jesus says, Okay, you can't talk about this till after I'm raised, the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
And they're trying to figure that out. They believed in a resurrection at the end of time, but this didn't make sense to them. And they're getting more crafty in their, their way they ask questions. And so they said, well, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And Jesus said, yeah, Elijah has come. In Mark, John the Baptist, we see dresses like Elijah, talks like Elijah, says things Elijah says. He's the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Yahweh himself. And of course, in the Gospel of Mark already, his head has been served up on a platter. And so Jesus is calling them once again to suffering. Now, why is this here? Why did this happen? I want to answer that in three ways. It happened for Jesus, it happened for the disciples, and it happened for you. It happened for Jesus. This was an unexpected gift from the Father. That the Father would affirm, as Jesus sets his face like flint to go to the cross, the Father affirms, you my son I love. And I've called you to do this. And and he affirms him with his voice. He gives him these two Old Testament saints. The disciples, Jesus' best friends, don't have a clue about what Jesus is doing. They don't understand. But Moses and Elijah understand because this is what they were talking about. The greater one that was prophesied. The one who would come and save his people. And so there's affirmation for Jesus. There's encouragement for Jesus. And it also, it's a reminder of the glory that Jesus left behind. And it's a foretaste of the glory that is in front of him in the resurrection. And as the author of Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. But this also happens for the disciples. The disciples are confused. They they think they can skip suffering 101 and go straight to glory 909. You know, this is what we do. You know, let's skip suffering and go straight to successful American dream. Right? (laughs) That's what we want. But we live in a fallen world. And Jesus says if we follow him that we will suffer. And we will struggle not just in the world but there will be persecution. It will be difficult. And so they needed to know that Jesus is doing the right thing. They needed to know that Jesus was greater than they thought. You see, Peter makes several mistakes. He wants to skip the suffering and go straight to glory. But he also is still equating Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And he needs to see that Jesus is greater. Jesus isn't reflecting glory. He is showing forth glory. You know, I don't know if y'all are Lord of the Rings fans. But um, there's a great thing, and, and if, if you're new to the Lord of the Rings, you might think Gandalf is a human being, the wizard, right? But if, you've, if you're a geek and you read the Silmarillion and uh, you know, some of the unknown tales, you know that he's actually one of the Mire from Valinor. And that means nothing, right, unless you're really nerdy like me. But, <laughs> but let's just say he's kind of like a demigod, right? He's, he's someone a lot greater than just like some basic human being or hobbit. And there's this moment in the movies, the first movie, where Bilbo won't give him the ring. And so for a moment, Gandalf begins to reveal who he is. He grows bigger and larger and that everything around grows dark. And, and it's like this peak behind the curtain. And that's what Jesus is giving them. Jesus has been doing this. He, he doesn't say, God will forgive your sins. He says, I will forgive your sins. He calms the sea. He treads the seas underfoot as he walks across. He, he's been revealing himself as Yahweh himself in the flesh 
throughout the Gospel of Mark, but the disciples are slow to understand. They're not understanding Him. And so, and, he, and He's also continuing to push them toward understanding that Isaiah 53 is about Him. And eventually He will say, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. But this passage is also for you. It's for you, first of all, to see Jesus. We need to see that Jesus is glory itself. We need to see that Jesus is what we are looking for in all the different things in our lives we're chasing. We think that it's this relationship. If that relationship will just work out, then everything will be good. Or if my career will just take a step forward, then everything will be okay. Or, or if I get this advance, then I will be okay. And what, all of those things, those could be good gifts from God. They could be wonderful things, but the desire of your heart is met by Jesus alone. Jonathan Edwards, not known for... Uh, his brevity, but I'm going to read a short quote from him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says, Christ Jesus has true excellency, so great that when it comes to see it, the mind rests there. It sees a transcendent glory and an ineffable sweetness in him. It sees that till now it has been pursuing shadows, but that now it has found the substance, that before it had been seeking happiness in the stream, but that now it has found the ocean. All the things in your life you think you need will not satisfy you. Jesus is the one thing in your life that will bring satisfaction. So we're called to see Him, but we're also called to hear Him. God says, listen to Him. Who do you listen to? Everyone in this room is listening to someone right now. You know, as you grow up, you listen to your parents, and this is part of the teenage years, is psychologists call it individuating, right? You begin to think for yourself, you push away, and we think we're thinking for ourselves. But do you know what we're listening to? We're listening to the culture. How do you define success? How do you define a good day? How do you define your life goals? Jesus is the one that should define who we are. And yet we're listening to the culture around us, but it's more than listening to Him in that way. Whenever God speaks in Scripture, it is to reveal Himself. And whenever He reveals Himself, what He is revealing is His love for us. And this is why throughout the rest of the New Testament, all of the writers talk about being in Christ. Because you see, these words about Christ, this is my Son whom I love, are words that are said for you. This is my child whom I love. Because Jesus is actually your substitute. There are three, then this is the end, but there are three fence posts, foundational fence posts in Mark that hold the whole thing together. They are the baptism, the transfiguration, and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And there are all kinds of literary parallels between them, and in each of them, Jesus is called the Son of God. And in the first one of the baptism, God the Father speaks and He says, This is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased. In this passage, God the Father speaks and says, This is my Son whom I love. Listen to Him. 
But do you know who speaks when Jesus is on the cross? Does he hear the voice of the Father? Absolutely not. He, the person who calls him the Son of God is the centurion who's helping crucify him. The Father is silent. And the reason the Father is silent is because at that moment, Jesus is bearing your sin in your place. And He hears silence from His Father so that in your life you will never hear the silence of God. In your life, God will always say, This is my child whom I love because you are found in Jesus Christ. You see, on this mountain that He is revealed in His glory, it's a private thing. But when He is in His shame revealing His glory on the cross, it is public. Here he's surrounded by the great heroes of the Old Testament. There he's on either side are two thieves, two murderers, two criminals. Here, God says, this is my son whom I love. There, silence. Here, the, the garments shine bright. There, he is naked. Shamed in front of everyone. And it's for you. You see, so often we're scared... Because we're scared that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. You know, Seinfeld, George reveals his heart to Jerry because Jerry has a moment where he's going to be compassionate. And at the end of it, Jerry says, good luck with all that. (laughs) Rejection. I watched a movie last week and, and this man's wife says to him, oh Barney, you do wear your heart on your sleeve, now put it away, it's revolting. We're we're scared. I have a friend of mine whose life fell apart said, this is not who I wanted to be. And many of us in here think the same thing. And you need to hear this. These words to Christ are words to you as you are found in Jesus Christ. Whoever you are, no matter what shame, no matter what sin, no matter how dark you feel your heart... In Christ, God says to you, this is my child whom I love. Because Jesus heard the silence of God when he went to the cross for us. There's not time to pray, so let me give a benediction. (laughs) May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.